Steve and Kim Puckett are Marie's and my uh, longest lasting friends. We go back to 1980, 35 year run now of friendship with them. They have moved several times. We've moved several times and, and the friendship has always been maintained. I was thinking back the last two weeks, back in the early days of the friendship, their daughter was just a, a young child, maybe a, a year or two old. They, they um, were drying some clothes. They thought the clothes dryer was off. They packed up to leave the house briefly and, and did so. Uh, not realizing the clothes dryer was still on, some lint caught fire and their house caught fire. Um, by maybe God's grace, they happened to come back quickly. They caught the fire. Only one room was damaged. But, but I cannot tell you the relief Marie and I had when we heard the story. I mean, they, they thought, they thought, they believed the truth was the dryer was off. It wasn't. They believed a lie. I cannot tell you the relief we felt that, that they weren't hurt and that the house wasn't burned down. I saw a picture last week of, of a different story. Uh, last year sometime, there was a house with seven adults in it. There was one candle burning. All seven adults believed the candle was blown out. They went to bed, and they believed a lie. And the candle was burning. It caught a curtain on fire. It burned the house to the ground, and a 25-year-old man lost his life in the blaze. Seven people believed a lie, and it cost them dearly. We try to build our lives upon truth. I, many of you I don't know, but I can say this. We all, we tried to build our lives upon truth. And we realize that there are a lot of areas where truth is really, it's a low stakes deal. There are some things that we get it right or get it wrong, doesn't matter that much. I, suppose I have a friend in Dallas, and suppose I really think, I really believe my friend's car is a green car. And, and I'm wrong, it's a lie, his car is a red car. Well, no harm, no foul, nothing lost, Right? But suppose I leave here when this service is done and I get out on 528 and I'm headed toward a light and I sincerely believe the light is green, but I'm believing a lie, it's a red light instead. It could be very costly, couldn't it? We try to build, we try to build our lives upon the truth and there's some areas where the stakes are so high, if we build our lives upon some lies, it's like building our life into a house of cards and it's just a matter of time until our life collapses like a house of cards. And so we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about some high-stakes subjects, some high-stakes area. And, and they're the, the types of subjects that if we get those wrong, if there's, a, if there's a lie in there, it's just it's a false card or maybe two or three or four false cards, and any one of them can collapse the house or burn the house to the ground. And so I, I want to say this to you in these high-stakes areas we're going to look at the next several weeks. There is so much potential gain for your life to, to be sure that you're grounding your life on what is indeed true, that you ground your life upon that, that I, would, I want to urge you, just mark the next 10 Sundays of your life and say, this is where I'll be the next 10 Sundays. I mean, whatever it takes, whatever you have to do to rearrange schedules, the next 10 Sundays, because there's so much potential, there's so much hope, there's so many areas that you and I might find we're building our life upon a lie or two or three or four lies, and it could change everything. And if you have to miss one, if you're sick or there's some travels you have to do, then just make the note. You're going to check the audio online or the video online. There's, there's so much hope, so much potential the next 10 Sundays. This is where I want to begin today with this is the first lie we're going to talk about. It's foundational to all the rest. The lie is this, is that absolute truth is a myth. Absolute truth is a myth. And while you're quickly processing that about what you think about that statement, this is what it sounds like. This is what you might say or what you might hear. It may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Talking about something. Maybe true for you, not true for me. You have your truth. 
I have my truth. Or all truth is relative. Those are the things you might say, you might hear. Look, you have your truth, I have mine. They're very different, but they're both true. Now, there's some areas we don't struggle with that. Uh, Some areas we're clear on absolute truth. I have gone to great effort and great expense to illustrate for you. There's some things we lock into as absolute truth, okay? Okay, hold on to your seat. Here's, Here's what it is, okay? If I take one cookie and I add it to one cookie, how many cookies do I have? Two cookies. Absolute truth, right? No argument? Too impressed how much money I spent to illustrate this to you? One plus one is two, right? I, I plan to do some higher math with you. I came to church today with four cookies. It was going to be two plus two. But about 6.30 this morning, I realized the danger of edible props. And this is all I have left. So one, we have no argument. One plus one is two. Here's another one. There is a beating heart inside your chest, right? No argument. No argument. Except for the guy who's either he's the heart stopped beating or I've put him to sleep already back there. But other than that, there's a beating heart in your chest, right? Absolute truth. Or these are blue jeans. No argument, right? But there's some areas where maybe you and many not quite so sure if it's absolute truth. For example, the question, who is God? It's a question in which one's prone to say, well, you have your truth, I have my truth. Or the question of what is right and what is wrong. Well, your truth and my truth aren't the same about that. What is good and what is evil? And these are the high stake areas. These are the areas, if we get these wrong, it could not only collapse the house, it could burn the house to the ground. Um, so, so it may help some because I know there are a number in this room who in, in practice would really sense that uh, there's no absolute truth. Yeah, I, I got mine, you got yours. I want to spend about two minutes thinking about the source of that assumption and see if we can reconstruct that a different way. I think part of the source is this. I think that we would, we would all believe that no one group of people has a lock on all truth. There's no one group of people that has a lock on all truth. There's no person that has a lock on all truth. All people are fallible, which means they're prone to mistake. All people are limited in knowledge and wisdom. So there's no group or there's no person who has a lock on all truth. So we would look at, at another country and say, that country doesn't have a lock on all truth. Or we would look at a political party and say, no political party has a lock on all truth. Okay? And if you're struggling on that one, you've been drinking their Kool-Aid way too long. Okay? No political party has a lock on all truth. No politician has a lock on all truth. I would go so far as to say, no church No church has a lock on all truth. No pastor has a lock on all truth. And so, because no person, no group of people have a lock on all truth, then we're left to taking some truth from that group that I agree with and a different truth from that group and another truth from that person. And I'm left with this sense of I'm having to construct my own truth and you're doing the same. And in the end, in the end, I'm thinking I have my truth, you have your truth. And some little twist of logic I might even say that I have my truth and you have yours and mine is right and yours is right even though they're in direct conflict with each other. Okay, I think that's the source of many people who say there's no absolute truth. But do some fresh thinking with me. Let's go a little bit deeper on this. Um, I, I would agree no one, no person, no group of, a group of people have all truth. But if there is a creator of this world 
would not you expect him to have all truth about his creation? If he's the one that has created it, has crafted it, has designed it, if he is the architect, would you not expect him to have all truth about his creation? I have a friend named Jack who has created a measurement device in the petrochemical world, and I can guarantee you my friend Jack knows all truth about that little creation of that device. I have an engineering degree. I practiced engineering 15 years. I like to fool myself that I'm still current with engineering. But I've talked with Jack about this device, and about 15 minutes in, I am lost as a goose, and I'm smiling and nodding my head. And Jack is going on and on and on, and he knows every single detail. It's his creation. He made it. Wouldn't you think, if there is a creator of this universe, wouldn't you think that, that he would hold all truth? He is not fallible as we are. He's not prone to error as we are. He's not limited in knowledge and wisdom as we are. Wouldn't you think he would have all truth? And when you look at, at people at the human race and you think of the, the uh, brilliant complexities put in the human mind where we can think so deeply, and even more than that, when you think about the, the depths of emotions that we can feel as human beings, and then you think about the, unique, the uniqueness in which he created every single person, different DNA for every single person, would it be that big of a stretch of imagination to think that that creator who knows everything would care about and would love people whom he's created enough to convey that truth to them? Is that that big of a stretch to think that the creator would actually hand down what is absolute truth to his creation to people? The Bible makes that claim, being absolute truth from God. Now, let me pause right here and say, I, I fully understand that we are not all on the same place about what I just said, about the Bible being absolute truth from God. I understand that there are a number in this room that are highly skeptical of that. There's some others who are somewhat skeptical. There, there are many others here who deeply believe that. And, and I think I understand the entire spectrum from the time I was 15 to 30, I covered the spectrum. When I was 15, I was somewhat skeptical. When I was 20, I was highly skeptical. When I was 27, I began to wonder if it might be true. By the time I was 30, and this is, you, you need to know where I'm coming from. By the time I was 30, I came to believe the Bible is handed down by God. It contains absolute truth. That you need to know that's where I'm coming from. And a lot of you aren't there. That's fine. That's fine. Okay. There's this entire spectrum, but, but this is what the Bible claims, and wherever you, whether you, wherever you stand, hear what the Bible claims, and then let me walk us through what this might mean for us and where we go from here. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this. It says, all Scripture, meaning the Bible, is inspired by God. In other words, it's come from Him. It's useful to teach us what is true. We need truth to build on it, to teach us what is true, and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. How many times, probably like myself, have you been observing your life and you think something's not right? Like something's off, something's wrong. If I only knew what was wrong, I would fix it. This is saying that scripture is given by God to show us what's wrong so we can fix it. it corrects us when we're wrong, teaches us to do what's right. Okay, that's 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture, and prophecy means, in essence, it means um, giving the Word of God, 
So in this case, it's not prophecy in terms of just a prediction. In this case, it's just writing down God's words. It means the Bible. No prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. The claim is that the Bible is from God. He's the author of the Bible. Proverbs 35 says, every word of God proves true. Every, every word of God proves true. And there are, I could have a long, long list of other scriptures that make similar claims as this. And, and so these are the claims. And then I want to spend just a few moments, and this is for all of us, skeptical and not about it, to talk about the unique credibility of the Bible. Because there are many other so-called holy books, aren't there? We touch on some unique credibilities to the Bible that you find no place else. One is the historical accuracy. Another is the prophetic accuracy. Another is the stunning content. And the last is the effect upon a life. I'll touch briefly on each of those. The historical accuracy. For, for centuries, we had written history that was handed down, and there was no way to actually verify whether the histories were accurate or not. Maybe if you had enough histories that aligned together, written histories, you might think the likelihood of accuracy goes up. But uh, somewhere in the 19th century, archaeology became this science, if you will. As, as archaeology began to uncover civilizations, it became this great checkpoint about written history. And you would find some written histories were affirmed by what archaeology discovered, and some were, di- were, uh, were not affirmed by those discoveries of it. And so uh, 1850 and on, there were decades where, pause, uh, if you've read the Bible, it is filled with details about people and names and nations and events and cities and countries and on. It's filled with those historical type details. And so the first many decades of archaeology, there were, there were several parts of Scripture that there were no confirmations of what was written. For example, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. The book of Acts, there, there's so many little details. You're wondering, why would God write these down? In fact, you get to the book of Acts, and, and Luke is talking about the Mediterranean rim and, and the cities in this Mediterranean rim. And he's talking about the local government and the title of the head of the local governments. In one place he says, in Thessalonica, this one city, that was the Politarch was the head over the local government. Then he gets to Achaia, which is nearby. It's not Politarchs, it's proconsuls, he said. Then you get to Philippi that's near that, and it's neither Politarchs nor proconsuls, it's praetors. And then you get, he goes through all this, you get to this little island of Malta, which is not that far away, and it's as though he's run out of creativity of really cool government-sounding names. And he says, the guy that runs that, he's called the first man of the island. And so after a few decades, historians begin to look at what Luke has written, and they say he had to have made up all these details about governments and titles, and if he made all those details up about that, then how could we ever believe what he says about the church and about Jesus and about what God's been doing in this world? But a few more decades have unfolded, and every single title that Luke used has been uncovered archaeologically within those very same cities. Even the island of Malta, they uncovered this great um, rock that has on it, engraved on it, first man of the island. And now Sir William Ramsey has said this. He was one of the greatest archaeologists of all history. He said, Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect to its trustworthiness. He says, if you want to know what life was like in the first century, in the Mediterranean rim of the Roman Empire, read Luke first, because he nails it. His stuff is accurate. And, and I could go on and on with examples of this, but in summary, 
Over 25,000 archaeological sites have confirmed what Scripture has said historically. Over 25,000 sites, and not a single site has, has proven any lie or shown any lie in Scripture. Not a single one. 25,000 have affirmed it. Can I give you a comparison? This is with all respect. The Book of Mormon also portrays a lot of history in it. It's about the North American continent. It talks about people and cities and events on and on and on. And heaven knows with all of the construction we've done across the American continent, all the digging we've done, all the, all the archaeological uncoverings that could have occurred, not, there's not a single site that's proven a single historical proclamation in the Book of Mormon. The Bible, 25,000 confirmations, Book of Mormon, not a single one. There's this unique historical accuracy of the Bible. The prophetic accuracy, and here I'm talking about predictions in the Bible. I'm, I'm going to give you just one example. and many I could give you. I've taught on this in much more detail before. If you need more, email me. I can give you some previous teachings. I can give you books on this. give you one example of there's so many prophecies in the Bible that you can, you can actually look at history and see that they came true. Here's one of them. In the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 31, many other places, God says to the Jewish people, he says, if you walk away from me, I'll let you walk only so far, and I I finally will allow people to conquer you as a nation and disperse you to the other nations. But the day will come, I'll bring you back as a nation to Jerusalem again. He says that again and again and again. And so in AD 70, AD 70, Titus is the Roman emperor, and he has his Roman legions march into Jerusalem, and they destroy the city, they destroy the nation, and he disperses the Jewish people to the hinterland. He disperses them all over the Roman Empire. It's AD 70. Now, this is something you need to know. If you look at all civilizations in history, any, any nation, any people group that is dispersed, if they're dispersed for five generations or more, they simply fully assimilate into the countries where they are, into the cultures where they are. Five generations or more, they just simply disappear. History says they once existed. They no longer exist as a people group. You can study history on that. You can look at the Bible, biblical times, the times that the Jewish people lived. There were Moabites, and they had their God, and they were people, but they were dispersed, and after within five generations, they're just gone. You don't find a Moabite people anymore. There were Ammonites, they had their God, their people group, they were dispersed within five generations, gone. There were Edomites, they had their God, dispersed, five generations, gone. Philistines had their God, five generations in dispersion, just totally gone from the face of the earth, fully assimilated. Same period as the Jewish people. To AD 70, they're dispersed. Almost 1,900 years pass. 75 years generations. Still a people group. Massive, massive cruelties upon them. May 14th, 1948. Still a people group, 75 generations. They come back to Jerusalem, May 14th, 1948, within some of your lifetimes. And the prophecy of God from 2,600 years ago has come true in the lifetime of some people here. You can, you can check all the details out. It's all there. Prophecies in the Bible again and again and again. And there's no other holy book that has predictions and prophecies that have come true such as this. There's no other one. 
the stunning content. It's not a book about rules. It's a book about a relationship with the God of the universe. You look at other holy books, and primarily they say, this is how you can get close to God. If you do these things, if you do these things right, if you do enough of them, you can be close to God. This is a book not about these rules, doing all these things to get to God. This is a book that says you don't have a chance to get to God. He is more holy than you could imagine, and you are more sinful than you could imagine. You don't have a chance. But it says, but God loves you so much that, that Jesus, God the Son, came to this planet and died for his people to forgive every sin and give a path to God, to build this relationship with God. It, 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 as you unfold it, it is it's like, this, like this soaring fairy tale. Like when does, when does the God diverse creation, there's this soaring fairy tale except it's grounded in the actual events of history from Adam to this very day going forward. Like the fairy tale's being played out now. It's this stunning content. And then there's this effect upon people. I watched my mother and my father who said they had placed their faith in Jesus. I watched later on in my late 20s, I watched uh, the Townsends, Dennis and Andy, his husband-wife couple who said they gave their life to Jesus. I watched their lives. I watched the Davis family, a couple, same thing. I watched them. And every time I would see in each of those lives this, this deep humility, this authenticity, this love, peace, joy, courage, all of those things. And in and, and every life, they said, all of this has come out of this relationship with Jesus. And, and out of that story, I trusted my life to Jesus. And as Jesus said, you trust your life to me, and you'll be born again. Yeah, you won't be the same. You'll become a new person. You'll become a new person. The historical accuracy, the prophetic accuracy, the stunning content, the effect upon our life, it's unprecedented in any other holy book. It's simply unprecedented. Now, I'm not expecting all of you today to believe what I believe, is that this is from God and this is absolute. I'm not expecting that. But this is what I would ask. If, if you're not there yet, if you're skeptical of this to any degree, what I would ask is that you would embrace this simply as a working hypothesis, that the Bible is from God It contains absolute truth. Just embrace it as a working hypothesis. And as the weeks unfold, then then just hold this up and say, what if this is true? What if everything in in this book is from God? What if it's absolute truth? What would it mean? What What would the implications be? And you'll find ways along the process to test the hypothesis and see if it's true. I would just urge you, just take this as a working hypothesis. Now, I've got this caution, and this this will speak to many of you in this room, all this time you've been internally nodding your head saying, I believe the Bible's from God and I believe it's absolute truth. And yet the actions of your life do not affirm that you really believe that. Because reality is, as you read the Bible, the things that aren't that hard or aren't that difficult or the things that you like, you do. You, you claim their truth and you build your life upon those truths. But the things that are hard or difficult or risky, you just discard. I mean, do some, do some internal thinking right now. 
you, you build your life on what you really think is truth. And if you look at your actions, your actions are saying you, you're taking part of it. You don't believe the rest. And there's huge hope for you. There's huge hope in the weeks ahead. Because if you'll come to grips with that and you'll wrestle with that and you'll, you'll realize that, that you can trust him and what he says in this book, you can recalibrate your life and a life that's being built on lies that could wreck the whole house. You can change all that. And you can build every piece of the structure on truth. And there's this massive potential. There's this massive hope. And so do this honest internal check uh, about this claim. This book, the entire book, is from God. The claim, the entire book is absolute truth. Do you believe that or not? Do your actions confirm that or not? There's this massive, massive hope. The lie is that absolute truth is a myth. The truth is God's given us in the Bible absolute truth upon which to build our lives. This is where we're going each of the next several weeks, we're going to take a high-stakes issue. If we get it wrong, we could burn the whole house down. If we get it right, we can build a life that can be strong and secure and satisfying. Take a high-stakes issue. We're going to study what the Bible says about that issue and the implications of that upon our lives. And throughout the study, beginning today, I'm going to challenge us about something I think I've never challenged the church on before. I'm going to challenge us each week to memorize a verse, sometimes two, of Scripture. Memorize it, okay? I'm, I'm, I am horrible at memorizing stuff, but I think there's great gain. We're going to get at least ten small pieces of God's Word in our memory bank. The first one is this. You have a small card that was in your chair. You can take it out if you'd like now. You have a small card in your chair. 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what's right. Let me give you some suggestions because I'm a horrible person at memorizing. I found this to be helpful. Some of you uh, who are a lot smarter than me don't have to listen to this part, but if you struggle like me, listen. It helps me to, to take it phrase by phrase and day one, like take the first pray phrase and just pound it and pound it and pound it, okay? And try to get that first phrase down and then write out the whole thing two or three times that first day. Second day for me, I'll pound the first phrase again and I'll add the second phrase and pound it, pound it, pound it. I'll write the whole thing a couple times again and build on that, okay? That's just to help memorize. But here's what really matters is as you do it, focus on what it says. Look at what it really says and ask yourself the question in all honesty, do I believe this? And then check your actions versus your answer and see if your actions affirm what your answer is. Okay, focus on what it says and then ask, do I really believe this? And do my actions back up the answer I had? And then consider the implications for your life. Okay, the implications today, again, you know where I'm coming from now, where I've come from the last three decades now. I, I believe this is true. The implications are every single word, this is my opinion, every single word in the Bible is absolute truth. If that's true, your house, your house, if you build it on that, it's not going to collapse. It's not going to burn to the ground. There's going to be this relationship with Jesus that can grow and grow and grow. 
We're going to conclude with a song in just a moment, and I want to set it up this way because there are many of you in this room who have turned to Jesus and said, I need your forgiveness. Would you forgive me? And you've said, I'm surrendering my life to your leadership. Would you lead my life? And the song we're going to sing is a reflection of the outcome of that kind of life. It's really, and it all comes out of Scripture, it's a reflection of that kind of life. The song, the song is called Boldly I Approach. And it's this, it's this picture of because of what Jesus has done, then you can boldly approach the God of the universe. It's this stunning reality, stunning truth. And as we begin to sing this song in just a moment, if, if that's where you're at, then, then look at these words and sing from the core of your being. If it's not where you're at, then, then respond in one of two or three ways, you might be able to stand and, and track and sing these words and ponder them and hold them as a working hypothesis. Could it be true? Could it really be true? Like Jesus died for my sins. When he was on the cross, he knew me. He knew my name. He knew what my sins would be. He died for my sins. Could it be true? Could it be true if I asked him to forgive me and lead me? He would forgive everything. He'd give me a brand new life. He would begin to change me from the inside out. He would give me eternity in heaven. Could it be true? Or maybe you want to just stand or sit and just, just take in the words of what seems like this soaring fairy tale and realize that historically the fairy tale is actually happening. It's been unfolding since Adam. It unfolded at the cross. It's unfolding to this very day in this room. This day this day. There could well be some of you in this room that say, Jesus, I'm going to believe this. Please forgive me. Please lead me. I'm surrendering my life. And this day, there'll be many in this room that aren't there yet, but you've got to come back, hold this hypothesis, and, and see if it leads you to the truth on it. Let me pray, and then we're going to experience this song together. Father in heaven, you said in Psalms 32.8, you said, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Father, I have learned that is true. Father, in this room, all of the ones who have begun a life following Jesus, may our hearts fill up with gratitude. May our hearts soar as we experience this song. Father, the ones in this room who, who are, to this point are skeptical, May there be some that, that step across the line from skepticism to belief to faith, even in this time now, Father, even in the midst of this song, and say, I want that. I want to be able to boldly approach God, and I trust Jesus is that way. And then, Father, may there be others in the room that are still skeptical, but maybe, maybe, maybe their hope will rise up enough to come back again and again until they cross that line, too. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.